This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. It's the Thanksgiving week version of the Fenway Rundown podcast. I'm Chris Cotillo, Sean McAdam alongside. And we are not going to talk about the Red Sox offseason today. We are not going to talk about free agent rumors, trade rumors, any of that. We'll save that for tomorrow's episode. It's Hall of Fame ballot release day. Sean is a voter. I will be in a few years pending death or retirement. And so, therefore, we're going to talk to Sean about kind of his initial thoughts on this ballot, the voting process, things like that. The Hall of Fame releasing the ballot today. 26 guys are on it. 14 holdovers, 12 newcomers. Sean, as you look at this ballot and you prepare to vote by the end of the year, is there anything that stands out in particular to you? Or is it um, is it a weaker ballot than usual, a stronger ballot? Or how do you assess it? Yeah, um, it, it's always fun when the ballot comes and you sort of give it a, you know, I tend to look at it kind of quickly and then put it away for a while. Uh, I tend to... Uh, delve into it more as we get into December and the deadline comes up. I think that's the procrastinator in me, but also I want to sort of take my time and give the process as much research and dedication as it deserves. And I take this very seriously. It's a great honor. And I'm happy, I I think, uh, that this may be my 25th year as a voter uh, for the those who don't know, it usually requires uh, 10 consecutive years of membership in the Baseball Writers Association of America uninterrupted, and then you qualify for your first ballot. So given that last year was year number 35 on the beat, I'm right around 25 years as a voter. And, and you know, that's been, as I said, a great privilege. Uh, I, when I look at this new ballot, um, it Boy, you know, there are some years where you look at all the newcomers and say, like, eh, you know, decent career, but no chance. I, I would say that this ballot has more interesting first-year names than most. Um, I can see myself certainly voting for a couple of these guys and at least giving deeper consideration for some others. Uh, I see one name in there that I think is going to get a lot of support. Um, probably not for me, not again, this is not, uh, this guy was a lousy player. I just don't think some quite rise to the level of hall of famers, which are, you know, in my mind, even though I, I think as my voting career, if we can call it that has gone on, I've tended to become a little bit more of a bigger hall guy than I was. I think initially I was uh, very discerning in my choices. It wasn't unusual for me to vote one or two guys. Now I typically vote five or six, depending on the year. That changes on the number of names that are on there and the quality of names. Um, so I think there's going to be, you know, a handful of the newcomers that are going to get consideration. And certainly I see at least a couple that I would expect to vote for. I have three holdovers from previous years that I would anticipate voting for again. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. Uh, those three holdovers are uh, Carlos Beltran, um, Billy Wagner, and Andrew Jones. Uh, all three 
that I voted for last year and would expect to vote again. And then you see some interesting names here, including Chris, some guys that have Red Sox connections. Um, you know, we, we've already talked a little bit off the air about that, but uh, a few of these guys with Red Sox connections, Adrian Gonzalez is one. Um, uh, Adrian Beltre is another. Very briefly, Bartolo C Colon was. Um, Jose Bautista never played for them, but seemed to be involved in a ton of trade rumors that was that were always going to result in him coming here. It never happened. Uh, James Shields is a guy that you once in a while heard about him uh, perhaps being a target of the Red Sox, but he did not come here. And who can forget the contributions made by one Brandon Phillips one afternoon in Atlanta toward the end of the 2018 season, a, a afternoon so dramatic press that if you recall it nearly took my legs out from underneath me yes that was arguably my favorite moment on the beat so far in five years first of all the first thought on brandon phillips there he is the first player i have covered to appear on a hall of fame ballot because i started in 2018 and that is uh he counts even though it was only a handful of games a very memorable game big comeback him with his really his shining moment in a red sox uniform after the game, waiting post-game to go into the clubhouse, Sean leaned on a quote-unquote wall that was really just a kind of plastic divider, I guess, for lack kind of a of better a, term. It was like a curtain. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it would be like leaning against a shower curtain and hoping that it would keep you upright. Um, but as happened in the great film um, Raging Bull, uh, I could say... You never got me down, Ray. Uh, I did not hit the ground. I somehow managed to stay on my feet, but it was quite a stumble backwards that gave you no end of amusement and continues to haunt me to this day. One of the great memories, again, for me on the beat and the history of Truist Park down there in Atlanta. Safe to say Brandon Phillips will not be going into the Hall of Fame, or if he was, if he'd be wearing a Red Sox Hat, I do find it funny, um, looking back to the 2019 ring ceremony, he came back, got his ovation from the crowd, and was with the, um, got his ring in the uniform, the whole thing, and that was the end of Brandon Phillips' career. He got his ring, so good for him. You know, they don't get to 108 wins without him. That's true. That's absolutely responsible true. responsible for one of those. So we'll talk about kind of who you voted for last year and a notable name that was left off. Uh, Scott Rowland was the only one inducted through the BBWA voting last year. A guy who came extremely close in part because of you, 72.2%, uh, Todd Helton, who enters his sixth year on the ballot. Uh, again, we're not here to spoil your ballot this year. There's a chance these things could change. I know the ballot's you know, four hours old, but Todd Helton is not somebody you voted for in the past as he sits here on the precipice of um, you know, just less than 3% away from getting in. Yeah, and look, anybody who gets that close almost certainly is going to get in, uh, although try telling that to one Kurt Schilling, who didn't get quite as close as Todd Helton did, but uh, nonetheless appeared to be on track in his final year and then didn't get over the threshold. I suspect that Helton will. Um, I haven't made a definitive decision here, but I don't see my vote changing. Uh, to me, he's uh, in the class or... Uh, category of Hall of Very Good. Uh, to me, he had 10 really good years, 
that were greatly enhanced by playing in Coors Field. Uh, you look at the splits, and uh, the numbers were nowhere near as impressive on the road. And really, after those first nine or ten really good years, some great, admittedly, with a, a ton of doubles, um, for a first baseman, the numbers don't knock me over. And as I said, I think not disqualifying to me, but certainly part of the equation is how much he benefited from his home ballpark and the fact that he didn't, while he played a long time, his last handful of years were rather unspectacular and just sort of added to his counting stats. So we'll project probably that he'll get in because, as you said, it's at that point already 72.2%, only his fifth year on the ballot. This will be year number six, so plenty of time. Probably just a handful of votes away. So I think, you know, safe to if say. If he doesn't get in this year, he certainly will get in uh, sometime in the next four or five years. And then below him, three guys who uh, you said you voted for who are also kind of knocking on the door. Billy Wagner with 68.1% last year. Andrew Jones, 58.1% last year. Then there's Gary Sheffield at 55, who you did not vote for. is in his 10th and final year of eligibility. And then Carlos Beltran, who was on the ballot for the first time last year and got 46.5%. Just quickly, why did those guys pass the smell test for you? And was there any part of you that wanted to hold the Astros sign-stealing scandal against Carlos Beltran and the Hall yeah, of Fame eligibility? That, that's a that's a fascinating point. And I'll get to that in a minute. I'll go to the guys I did vote for. I voted for Andrew Jones from year one. Uh, I know that he too had a relatively brief period of dominance. He too is about 10 years. Um, and then, you know, his days with the Dodgers and Yankees, uh, he was nothing more than a fourth outfielder and a journeyman guy fell off defensively and offensively, but in his prime, for that 10-year period in Atlanta at the beginning, to me, he was Ozzie Smith with power. And what I mean by that is he was the dominant defender at a key defensive position for a long time, as Ozzie Smith was. And to add to his candidacy, he also had more than 400 career homers. He was clearly, and you can use the eye test, the scouts test, any defensive metric you wish, defensive run saved, range factor, all of that. He was clearly the best center fielder of his era. And he added power with more than 400 and I think 30 home runs in his career. Uh, so to me, I have been a supporter from his first appearance on the ballot and will continue to do so. Uh, he's got some ground to make up and time is starting to run out on him, but I hope he gets in. Uh, you were asking me about also another Red Sox legend, Billy Wagner, Billy Wagner, a brief time here in Boston toward the end. Uh, but um, arguably the best left-handed closer in the game, uh, you know, over the last 20 to 30 years, uh, his strikeout to uh, per nine innings ratio is ridiculous he held batters to a well under 200 batting average for his career. Uh, the strikeout to walk ratio was tremendous. Uh, saves, as we know, can be somewhat misleading, but he was clearly a dominant closer at the back end. Um, Carlos Beltran, I did vote for. I also did think about his role in the 2017 sign-stealing uh, scandal with the Astros, 
Um, you know, we hold guys accountable for um, uh, failing uh, steroid tests, being suspended, using steroids, showing up in the Mitchell report, showing up in other documentation. Uh, why should we not also take into account that this guy clearly was trying to use illegal means uh, to help win games? And were it not for uh, the fact that players were given immunity, he might well have been suspended and faced other discipline as part of that investigation. To me, um, I don't know that we're ever going to have documentation about exactly what happened and by whom. Um, it's not a uh, a pro point. It's not in his favor that he got mixed up in that. But I think Beltran had a Hall of Fame a caliber career over his career as a great center fielder, somebody who hit for power, who could steal bases. He was a complete player, a five-tool guy in his prime. So to me, uh, I, I thought it was kind of silly to punish him for a year and then start voting for him in year two with that kind of thought out process. So I just started voting for him in his first year and I'm okay with that. Of the newcomers of the first ballot, guys, I don't think that you're going to want to be in a position to reveal who you're voting for because that decision has probably not even been made yet. I know you have hunches and I know you have thoughts on you know who's probably going to get in. We talked about this before rolling today. And, and really this year, I don't know if you agree, but the, the two guys that stand out above the field in terms of first ballot guys, Adrian Beltre and Joe Maurer, some other names that are on here, Chase Utley. David Wright, obviously injuries shortened that career significantly. As you mentioned, Adrian Gonzalez, Bartolo Colon, another former Red Sox, Victor Martinez, who we'll touch on, James Shields, Jose Bautista, who you mentioned, also Matt Holliday, Jose Reyes, and the great Brandon Phillips. Um, to you, is it just, in your mind, is it Beltre and Maurer in the field there, uh, or in the field? Is that how you kind of look at it? I, I certainly see them as the two leaders, as the two guys that grab you when you first look at the newcomers. But I think Chase Utley's going to get a lot of support. Um, I don't know that I'm going to be one of the people voting for him, but I think that Utley is going to get significant amounts of support. I would be I would not be surprised if he were up around the 40, 45, 50 percent first year. Um, I'm not sure to me he clears that hurdle. Um, for either first year or any year as a Hall of Famer. He had a very good long career, uh, played on some winning teams, certainly an, an excellent career, whether he uh, rises to the level of Cooperstown worthy, uh, I'm going to have to take a, a longer look at, but I would not be surprised if he got significant support in year one. Adrian Beltre was a Red Sox for a very short amount of time. The year was 2010. He signed a pillow contract. I think that was one of the first of that kind to happen. I think that might be where the term came from, from Scott Boris back then. Um, and he was absolutely excellent in Boston. I know it wasn't uh, a long time, but it was a memorable one, I think, for uh, just how good he was. What were your memories from his performance that year? And, and where does he rank to you among the great one-year wonders in Red Sox history? Oh, he might be the best one-year wonder in Red Sox history. There have been some others. Uh, we talked about this on Twitter uh, a week ago. Uh, I brought up the name Nick Asaski, who had a 30, 90, if not 100 RBI year in his lone season with the Red Sox before leaving, signing a deal with the Braves, and really 
not playing much again, if at all, because of um, vertigo and a, and a condition that he couldn't overcome in his, in his early 30s. And that was a sad story. Uh, but Beltre just had an incredible year, uh, did everything that the Red Sox could have hoped for, was still an elite defender, obviously, at that time, uh, went on to further extend his career with a long stay with Texas and solidified, I think, his case for Cooperstown. Uh, I, I remember, you know, how great he was in charging balls. Uh, coming in from third base, slow rollers, bunts, whatever. He could come in and make that play barehanded, uh, do whatever he had to do to 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 uh, throw out the runner at first. He was as good as anyone I ever saw doing that. And I think my, you know, I have two lasting images or memories of Adrian Beltre, one on the field, one off. The on the field was the down to one knee home run swing where he never got cheated and he would take these massive cuts where he would end up on one knee in the right-hand batter's box uh, with his follow-through. It was kind of a violent swing, and he gave everything he could do it. And then, of course, more comically, uh, his obsession with not letting anyone touch his head. And that became a thing to watch after every home run or every time he came into the dugout and scored a run. Uh You'd be looking for somebody to try to get their hand in there and rub his head, which for reasons that I never quite figured out uh, were, were enough to send Adrian Beltre over the edge. Uh, sometimes it looked like he was smiling when he reacted. Other times he looked a little more menacing, but it was always kind of a fun thing to see if anybody was going to try to rub his head like, um, you know, like you're rubbing the bottom, rubbing a, a the, the genie bottle for him to come out and the way he would overreact to it was kind of fun. Other former Red Sox we want to touch on, you know, as I said, Brandon Phillips, Bartolo Colon, Billy Wagner, those really don't have, um, there's not much Red Sox history with those guys, but the three we'll, we will touch on, Manny Ramirez is still uh, on this ballot and he is entering his eighth year. 33.2%. The numbers, obviously, Sean, speak for themselves. So do the multiple steroid suspensions. In your eyes, there's no chance Manny ever gets in? I don't think so. Um, you know, that that would take a, an incredible leap over the final two years. Uh, I would sort of put him in the same category, ironically, as Alex Rodriguez, um, as guys who, no question had Hall of Fame caliber numbers. And while a lot of people like myself were okay voting, at least for me after a while, I didn't do it admittedly the first couple of years, but then I voted for both Bonds and Clemens consistently uh, for a number of reasons um, that I really won't get into too much detail here. We'll do this a little bit later on when we do a fuller show on our ballot and reveal our votes. Uh, but to me, the difference maker in terms of why I would vote for somebody like Clemens and Bonds and not vote for A-Rod or Manny is that they clearly violated the rules and tested positive uh, after baseball began its crackdown and with the participation and cooperation of the Players Association instituted pretty tough penalties. And even after that, both Manny and and Alex Rodriguez were caught multiple times. 
and um, my somewhat pithy explanation as to why I don't vote for Manny Ramirez is this. Uh, if he didn't care, why should I? Uh, to me, he kind of flouted the rules. It was like, you know, go ahead and suspend me. I don't care. I don't care uh, what the, the consequences are to my team or my teammates or myself. I'm going to keep using this stuff because it helps me. Uh, to me, that that was sort of a bridge too far. So I don't vote for either of those players. And the numbers reflect that less than half of the people do. And time is running out on both. We won't spend any time with some Manny recollections from covering him because, number one, we don't have the time today. Number two, this is a family show, and that would cross just about every boundary with all due respect to the Vinoy Renaissance in St. Pete. Um, the two names I do want to bring up to you guys that are not going to get in but do have Red Sox ties, both were very significant, significant trades with the Red Sox more than 10 years ago, Adrian Gonzalez and Victor Martinez. As you just assess quickly, their legacies, their time in Boston. Um, feels like Gonzalez with, you know, maybe a longer prime could be in consideration here. Martinez was never really a superstar in that way. Yeah, I mean, uh, Victor had some good years here and was a very effective switch hitting offensive catcher and then later more of a full-time DH and a good offensive player, um, but not so great in terms of his defensive, uh, in terms of his offensive production and numbers as a DH or even when he caught to offset the fact that he was really a below average catcher. Um, you know, good guy, good teammate, liked by everybody, respected, solid, long, productive, nothing to be ashamed of kind of career. Uh, better than that even, but to me, not Hall of Fame level. And Adrian Gonzalez was a guy that I think Theo Epstein had sort of lusted after for a number of years his name was connected here finally they make the trade with san diego to get him and everyone expects that this is a guy who is going to be the perfect left-handed bat at fenway use the wall to pepper balls for doubles off the wall hit some home runs over the left field wall um, and he had decent numbers. In fact, his rate numbers were really pretty good the first two years. But if ever there were a guy who was made not to play in Boston, uh, the prototype would be Adrian Gonzalez. He never uh, understood the passion the fans had. And think about where he played prior to coming here. He had been drafted by the Miami Marlins. He played, uh, he was part of the Texas Rangers organization and then the Padres. So he's played for three fan bases and organizations it, where, um, you know, it, there wasn't that kind of history. There wasn't that kind of intense fan following. There wasn't a lot of success at that point by any of those teams. And I think he never truly adjusted to the passion and the intensity that comes with playing in Boston. And we know uh, by experience that there are players who simply are not made to play in places like Philly and New York. Um, and also, um, you know, a place like Boston. And that was, that was one of them. Um, he, he just didn't, uh, I think the whole experience confounded him. The fact that people were so into the results that had expectations 
that were interested in how the team was doing on a day-to-day basis and not casually following them on a lark the way you would see in San Diego. He never really got that. And then he didn't endear himself to the fan base anymore when, you know, uh, in the famous collapse of 2011, he sort of chalked it up to God's will. He complained that they played too many Sunday night games. Um, it it just was a bad fit from the beginning. I have to admit that looking back at this, and I was in high school when he played here, so I give myself a little bit of credit, but 338 with 27 homers, 117 RBIs, 45 doubles, and a 957 OPS in 2011, an excellent year. In 2012, even before the trade, hit 315 homers and 812 OPS, a little bit of a drop there. Um, and then was never above really an 830 OPS for the rest of his career with LA as he got into his thirties. But the first year and really his entire time, if you look at it, 282 games and an 895 OPS, like he was productive. It just was such a weird fit and such a bad fit that I think that is what people remember. It's obviously what you do from covering it. We'll end with this. Uh, these guys don't count. I don't think there's no one in the boat of going into the hall of fame as a Red Sox. Be a real surprise if Adrian Beltre would wear the Red Sox hat, even as good as that one year was. Um, a great question now with we saw and we were both at David Ortiz's induction in Cooperstown last summer. Who is the guy who next goes in wearing a Red Sox cap? Uh, the names out there, Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling are off the ballot. David Ortiz is in. It's a good question and I think an interesting one, one that there might not be the clear answer to right now. Yeah, I mean, you could say that Mookie Betts is trending toward a, a uh, getting into Cooperstown when he retires. Um, it's doubtful, I think, that he would go in as a member of the Red Sox because he was only here, you know, for six years and change and presumably uh, having signed a much longer deal with the Dodgers, he'll be seen as a Dodger you know, post-retirement. Um, Xander Bogarts, that's a more of a long shot for him to, he would have to really kind of turn his career around now in his early thirties and have another four or five years that match the best ones he had in Boston. Is he capable of that? I suppose. Is it likely? Probably not. So not anybody we're thinking about there. Um, are we missing, uh, you know, Just, JD Martinez? Uh, probably not a Hall of Famer, given that he's almost been, uh, you know, reduced to DH only great numbers, but maybe not great enough to overcome the fact that he's really just a hitter. Uh, am I missing anybody else? Yeah, I mean, the two that come come to mind are two with injuries that kind of ruined the Hall of Fame track. I think Pedroia um, is yeah. probably out of the mix and Chris sale was definitely on that type of trajectory before the injuries. I mean, is it, do you discount both of them fully at this point? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, very good careers. Um, and you're right at, at some point, I think if we had gone back, you know, talking about Chris sale in 2017 or 2018, you would have said, Oh, sure. You know, this guy is wins 15 to 20 every year. Uh, you know, strikes out 250 to 300 guys, is a top five Cy Young Award uh, finisher most seasons. He was certainly on track for that. And the same with Pedroia, uh, you know, an MVP, a rookie of the year, multiple uh, 
World Series championships, but his career effectively ended uh, in his early 30s when he was probably on track to to being a Hall of Famer. But uh, I think both will come up short because of injuries, as you noted. Prediction for the next guy to go in in a Red Sox hat, Terry Francona, though. He did spend more time in Cleveland. He did win the championships here. I would guess he's the one. Yeah, hadn't thought of the non-player category and to what degree uh, Tito will have a say in that and whether there's some bitterness over how things ended here that he would prefer to associate with the Indians. He certainly is not going to be a Philly and uh, he's not going in for his playing career. So it is about his managerial career where he made three stops, uh, a longer tenure in Cleveland, as you point out, but far more success in the big picture with two championships and nearly a third pennant while managing the Red Sox. That's an interesting one. We'll leave it there. That's our first of what should be a couple of Hall of Fame discussions throughout the winter. Again, I don't get to vote yet. I'm not. I think I'm in year seven. Six, seven. So I, I'm a, I got a long ways to go. Uh, Chris Smith will have a vote again this year, as well as Sean McAdam. We'll be discussing who they vote for when those ballots come out. Um, I believe in January will be the time for that. We'll be back tomorrow wrapping up uh, some pre-Thanksgiving thoughts on the Red Sox, Yamamoto, and all that good stuff on the Fenway Rundown. A reminder that throughout the winter, we're going to be taking a lot of questions from our Red Sox Insider Text Program where you have the ability to text me, Chris Cotillo, Chris Smith, stay up to date on all the Red Sox news. It's $4.99 a month with a free 14-day trial period. And to join and check it out, all you have to do is text JOIN to 617-751-6257, then simply click on the link and subscribe today. It's a lot of fun. People are enjoying it. We think you will too. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.